Anytime you talk about divorce or divorce and remarriage, there are a host of responses that will surface. Hurt, pain, fear, anger, and many others. One of the reasons why there are so many responses is because there are so many people who have been touched by and impacted by divorce. In an issue of Newsweek magazine, a journalist asked a rather simple but profound question. He said, and I quote, Is there anyone left in the land who has not hurt a friend, a child, or a parent? Describe the agony of divorce. Of course, the answer to that question is no. I don't have to tell you that divorce is rampant in our society. And as Christians, as a church, there are usually one of two responses to this problem or to this issue. On the one hand, there are those who look at the problem of divorce and they simply excuse it by saying, well, he's only human, she's only human. Maybe it was wrong for him to divorce his wife or Maybe it was wrong for her to divorce her husband, but God's a forgiving God. After all, we have to accept things the way they are. This is the 21st century. Besides, God wants us to be happy. So there are those who look at the problem of divorce, and their response to it is to lower God's standard. They look at the problem of divorce, and they say the solution is just to accept it. Don't ever say anything about it. Just accept it. On the other hand, there are Christians who look at the divorce rate and they say, we have to do something to stop divorce. Whatever it takes, we've got to do something to stop this. So in an attempt to stop divorce, they come up with a view that says, no divorce for anyone, for any reason, at any time, and absolutely no remarriage for anyone, any time, under any circumstances. In my opinion, that is simply a, an ostrich mentality on the subject. You just stick your head in a hole in the ground and ignore passages that make you uncomfortable and ignore difficult circumstances in life that are hard to deal with and wrestle with from a scriptural point of view. But we can't do that with the Word of God, and neither can we do it in life and in ministry. We can't look at the problem of divorce and say, in order to stop the problem, let's say that the Bible teaches no divorce or remarriage regardless, period. We can't avoid working with difficult situations in people's lives by saying something the Bible doesn't say. So Christians today are taking both views on this issue or both approaches to this subject. Some are trying to move God's standards on divorce to the left, while others are trying to move the standard to the right. But beloved, I want us to hold the standard exactly where the Word of God puts the standard. So let's see what the Word of God has to say on this subject. Please turn with me in your Bible to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 10. In our continuing series through Mark, we come this morning to the 10th chapter. And follow along, please, as I read verses 1 through 12. 
Mark tells us, then Jesus, he, he arose from there and came to the region of Judea by the other side of the Jordan. And multitudes gathered to him again, and as he was accustomed, he taught them again. The Pharisees came and asked him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And they asked this, testing him. And he answered and said to them, what did Moses command you? They said Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and to dismiss her. And Jesus answered and said to them, Because of the hardness of your heart, he wrote you this precept. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So then they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. In the house, his disciples also asked him again about the same manner. So he said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if a man divorces, or if a woman divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. This is an abbreviated account of Jesus' teaching on divorce and remarriage. Before Mark gives us the teaching, he begins by giving us the background and the setting. And it's very important in our understanding of this particular passage. Mark tells us that Jesus left Galilee way up north where he had been ministering for many months. The great Galilean ministry has come to an end. And Jesus is slowly headed toward Jerusalem and the cross. But it's going to take him a while to get there. Because everywhere he goes, he is pulled into ministry. Pulled into situations where people want something from him and have needs. That's what we see here in this text. He left Galilee, and verse 1 tells us he came to the region of Perea, which is on the east side of the Jordan River. Notice verse 1. Mark tells us he arose from there and came to the region of Judea. Now that's the southern part of Israel. But not Judea where Jerusalem is located. That's not where he's at now. Mark goes on to say, by the other side of the Jordan. Over on the east side of the Jordan. And multitudes gathered to him again. And as, was his, as he, he was accustomed, he taught them again. Jesus would end up ministering in this region for a few months. But wherever he went, people found him and Mark tells us he taught them. As was the case with the Galilean ministry of Jesus, a major component of the ministry in Perea also involved healing the many sick people in society. Mark doesn't mention this facet of the ministry here, but Matthew does in his gospel account in the parallel account. Mark's emphasis in this text is not on the healing of Jesus. Matthew mentions that. But Mark's emphasis is on the teaching of Jesus. Specifically, Mark chose to record what Jesus had to say about divorce and remarriage. It all starts with a loaded question from the Pharisees. Verse 2. The Pharisees came and asked him, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And Mark adds this, testing him. 
This was not a legitimate question. This wasn't a sincere question. This was a test. This was a trap. It's extremely important to understand some of the historical and cultural background that is behind this question and geographical background. There was a group of Pharisees in Jesus' day who followed the teachings of a rabbi named Hillel. Rabbi Hillel died just 20 years before the ministry of Jesus, and his teachings, his views, were still very, very popular in Jesus' day. The majority of the Pharisees held to the view taught by Rabbi Hillel. Rabbi Hillel taught that a man could divorce his wife for just about any reason. A man could divorce his wife for burning a meal. A man could divorce his wife for putting too much salt on the food, for spinning around in the street so that someone saw her knees. Now, I'm just, these are quotes I'm giving you, okay? For taking her hair down, for speaking to men, or for saying something unkind about her mother-in-law. A man could divorce his wife if he found someone more attractive, if she was infertile, or if she didn't have a male child. In other words, a man could divorce his wife for just about any reason at all. This was the view which the Pharisees taught in Jesus' day. This was the common, popular view of the day. In fact, if we were to turn back, we won't do it right now, but if we were to turn back to Matthew's account of this, this uh, occasion, he tells us this, Matthew 19.3, the Pharisees also came to Jesus, testing him and saying to him, now listen to the wording, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? Now, it's important to understand that the Pharisees weren't really interested in God's standard. They just wanted to get Jesus in trouble. They hated him by this point. They wanted to get him in trouble with the people, that is, the general population, and they specifically wanted to get him in trouble with Herod. Let me explain. The Pharisees already knew what Jesus' view was on divorce and remarriage. Jesus had stated it back in Matthew chapter 5. But since the popular view of the day was divorce for any reason, the Pharisees asked this question, especially the way they did, to put Jesus at odds with the people. The Pharisees wanted Jesus to lose his popularity among the crowds by disagreeing with the view of Rabbi Hillel or the loose, low standards of the day. But that's not all that's going on here. The Pharisees also wanted to get Jesus in trouble with Herod Antipas, who ruled this region of Israel. That is so significant, beloved. Don't miss that. The Pharisees waited till Jesus came into Perea to come up to him and ask him this question. They didn't ask him this question when he was in Galilee or over in Jerusalem. They waited till he came into this region where Herod Antipas ruled. What's the significance of that? Why? Herod Antipas was an adulterer because he was illegitimately married to his brother's wife. And you will remember that when John the Baptist confronted Herod's wrong, Herod had John put in prison And eventually, John was beheaded. Now, the Pharisees obviously knew all of this. This is actually, I mean, I don't know how else to say this. I hate to give them this credit, but this is actually a brilliant trap by them. This is a brilliant trap. 
Wait till Jesus gets into Perea. Ask him about divorce and remarriage. And when he makes a strong statement, he loses popularity with the people and maybe Herod throws him in prison and kills him. So they, they ask Jesus this question, hoping that they could get Jesus to make a strong statement against divorce, remarriage, and adultery so that Herod would get angry again and maybe kill Jesus. And then they could wash their hands of him and get rid of him. So this question here in verse 2 is not asked with pure motives. Mark makes that clear. Matthew makes that clear. This was a test. This was a trap. The Pharisees just wanted to get Jesus in trouble. They want Jesus to lose his popularity. And even better, from their standpoint, they want him to lose his life. But Jesus knew what they were trying to do. He knew exactly what was going on here. Verse 3, And Jesus answered and said to them, What did Moses command you? By this statement, Jesus was pushing them back to the word of God. Remember, they held to the view of Rabbi Hillel. But Jesus was basically saying that the word of God is the authority, not a rabbi. So they had to answer from Scripture. They had to wrestle with Scripture. And when they answered Jesus, they put the emphasis on what God allowed or permitted instead of what God designed and desired. Notice how they do this. Verse 4, they said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and to dismiss her. And Jesus answered and said to them, Because of the hardness of your heart, he wrote you this precept. Jesus didn't deny that divorce was allowed in the case when someone's heart was so hard that he or she would pursue sexual unfaithfulness. When a husband's or wife's heart is so hard that he or she is willing to be unfaithful, then sometimes the faithful spouse is left with no choice but to divorce. God in the Old Testament and Jesus in Matthew 19 recognized that those kinds of situations occur in life. And that is why there was and there is a divine concession of divorce. Jesus doesn't deny that. But that's certainly not God's ideal. Nor was it his plan from the beginning. So Jesus takes them back to that. Verse 6. But... But from the beginning of the creation, God made them male and female. By pointing back to the creation account in Genesis 1 and 2, Jesus is pointing out the fact that the Pharisees were willingly ignorant of God's standard concerning divorce. Furthermore, they were willingly ignorant of God's design, divine design for marriage. They were so caught up in, well, what are the loopholes? How can we get out of this? Rather than what is God's perfect design? What is God's desire for marriage? What is his plan? The last part of Jesus' response in here in verse 6 and his statement in verse 7 is a quote of Genesis 1.27 and 2.24. When Jesus quotes these words, he gives four reasons why it is not acceptable to divorce for just any cause. <clears throat> Reason number one, the pattern of creation. In verse 6, Jesus said, But from the beginning of the creation, God made them male and female. 
In other words, when God created marriage, he created one woman for one man. Think about what God did in creation. He didn't create alternatives. He didn't create any spares. Have you ever thought about that? He didn't give Adam or Eve the option to say, well, I'm not really happy in this marriage, so I'll find someone else. There was no one else. It was it. They had one option. And when Adam said to Eve, Eve, do you love me? She said, who else? I mean, there was no one else. God, God was making an obvious point with his pattern of creation. A husband and a wife should be committed to each other. Even though other people came along as time went on and the human race propagated, God's desire never changed. That's what Jesus is saying here. God's desire never changed. The pattern of creation clearly displays God's design in marriage. It is to be an indivisible relationship. The second reason Jesus gives as to why it is not acceptable to divorce for just any cause is because marriage is a commitment. Verse 7, for this reason... A man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. But verse 7 is key here. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. Jesus is simply reaffirming what God said all the way back in the book of Genesis. When you get married, you make a commitment before God and witnesses that you will love, honor, and cherish your spouse until the day you die. That is a lifelong commitment. And beloved, a vow is still a vow, regardless of the practice of our day. When you break your commitment to your spouse by divorcing him or divorcing her, not only are you violating the command of God, you're also violating the integrity of your promise. Stick with your promise. God says marriage is a commitment, so don't break that commitment by divorcing your spouse. Thus, Jesus reiterates that standard here in verse 7. The third reason that Jesus gives to show why it is not acceptable to divorce for just any cause is because marriage means becoming one. He says in verse 8, And the two shall become one flesh, so then they are no longer two, but one flesh. One is an indivisible number. You can't divide one. So when God says that a husband and a wife are one, he is saying that he, he doesn't ever intend for them to split up. When a man and a woman are married, they become one. That's what marriage is all about. You abandon yourself to your partner. You become one in body, mind, and spirit. You become one in purpose, direction, goals, feelings, emotion, will. And please notice that Jesus emphasizes this twice here in this verse, he says in verse 8, And the two shall become one flesh, says it there, so then they are no longer two but one flesh. In marriage, the two become one. For that reason, Jesus says you are not to divorce for just any cause. The fourth reason Jesus gives as to why you are not to divorce for just any cause is that God has made marriage. Verse 9, therefore what God has joined together, let not man separate. What is Jesus saying here? He's just simply saying God created marriage. It was his idea. It was his plan. Marriage is a God-ordained relationship. 
That's the point Jesus is making here. Many people misunderstand Jesus' point here, and as a result, they misuse this passage of Scripture. Please understand, Jesus is not talking about God leading two people to get married. He's not talking about directing two people to get married. That's the way some people read it. Therefore, what God has joined together. In other words, God has led this couple together. That's not what he's talking about. He's not talking about bringing together two people. He's not talking about joining them together in that sense of the term. What he's saying is that when two people get married, they are entering into a relationship that God has ordained. God is, is the one that is determined that men and women are to be joined in marriage. You see, when people take it the other way, like, well, it's only, marriage is only legitimate if God has led you, then they use that kind of reasoning to cop out. They will say, well, you know, it's looking back, God didn't put our marriage together so we can get a divorce. Some will say this. These are some of the ones I've heard through the years. We weren't even Christians when we got married, so, so God didn't bring us together so we can get a divorce. Or, well, we were Christians when we got married, but, but we weren't really walking with the Lord, so God didn't bring us together. And then they'll say, so God is now leading us to get a divorce. That completely misses the point. The point that Jesus is making is that marriage is a work of God. It is a divine institution. He is not talking only about Christian marriages. He is not talking about the circumstances around how two people come together. The point is God made marriage, so don't tear it apart. Don't tear other marriages apart, and don't tear your own marriage apart. God created marriage. So the Pharisees tried to get Jesus in trouble by asking, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? Jesus responds by simply pointing them to the very first book of the Bible. Isn't that amazing? The confidence Jesus had in Scripture. Even Genesis, a book that is so dismissed, certainly by those in secular society, but even by a lot of Christians. Oh, you can't believe Genesis. You can't take Genesis literally. Jesus did. He just says, listen, there was Adam and Eve. God made them, put them together. That should settle the issue. That's God's divide, d- divine design. And it, what a rebuke to the Pharisees for Jesus to say, don't you even know what Genesis 1.27 and 2.24 teach? Don't you know what the first chapter of the Bible teaches and the second chapter? In essence, Jesus is saying it's very clear that God's view of Marriage is very different than yours. God's view of divorce is different than yours. God doesn't want you breaking up your marriage. We know that's true because of the pattern of creation, because marriage is a commitment, because marriage means becoming one, and because God has made marriage. Now, the Pharisees should have known these things. But the way Jesus words his response implies that they were willingly ignorant of God's standard. They didn't really want to know the truth because the truth indicted them. The truth restricted them. They were all a bunch of adulterers who kept divorcing their wives because they found someone more appealing or more attractive or more desirable. So they didn't want to know what God had to say about the subject. If they had wanted to know, there is ample, ample information in in Scripture, in their Scripture, in Hebrew Scripture. 
Genesis 1 and 2 aren't the only passages in Hebrew Scripture that speak against breaking up marriage and God's divine design for marriage. It's, God emphasized this over and over again in Hebrew Scripture. For example, the seventh commandment of the Ten Commandments says, You shall not commit adultery. Why would God put that in the Ten Commandments? Because adultery tears apart a marriage. Adultery attacks something that is sacred to God, marriage. So God specifically prohibits adultery. In fact, God sees this as so crucial that he made it one of the Ten Commandments. God not only prohibited adultery, he even instituted a severe punishment for violating it. In Leviticus 20.10, God said, The adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. God takes this so seriously, this idea of blowing up your marriage, destroying your marriage by unfaithfulness. God takes it so seriously that the penalty in Israel for adultery was death. Beloved, it's a serious issue with God when you break up a marriage, whether it's someone else's marriage or your own marriage. When in your hardness of heart you go pursue someone else and you become unfaithful and blow up your marriage, that's a serious thing to God. So God goes to great lengths to emphasize the permanence of marriage throughout Scripture. He, in Hebrew Scripture, he prohibits adultery. In Israel, he instituted the death penalty for adultery. And he even went a step further in the 10th commandment when he said, You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. So God says you are not to commit adultery because that destroys, that blows up something so sacred to me, marriage, you are not to commit adultery. In fact, you're not even to think about it. Don't even think about it. Don't covet your neighbor's wife or your neighbor's husband. Marriage is so sacred to God that he goes to great lengths to emphasize the point that marriage is a permanent relationship. But the Pharisees purposely overlooked these things. So here in this confrontation, Jesus simply reiterates the standard of God. But this confused the disciples because, again, their, their day, they live in the day of Rabbi Hillel's view was the prevailing view, and so they're confused. Verse 10, in the house, his disciples also ask him again about the same matter. It's likely that the disciples held the popular view of Rabbi Hillel, which was that divorce was permissible for any reason. So the disciples wanted some more information. They're basically saying, you mean it's not permissible for any reason? What if someone then, if it's not permissible for any reason, and what if someone goes ahead and does it anyway? They just say, well, I don't care what God says. I'm going to go ahead. Well, what if that happens? Well, here's the answer, verse 11. So he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if a woman divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Jesus made it clear that if you divorce your spouse just to go marry someone else, you are committing adultery. You can't just dump your spouse because you want someone else. That proliferates adultery. Jesus did make it clear in the parallel passage in Matthew 19 that there are biblical grounds for divorce and remarriage. But here, divorcing, Jesus is emphasizing that divorcing your spouse to marry someone else doesn't fall into that category. Divorcing your spouse just so you can go get someone else doesn't fall into that 
grounds for divorce mentioned in Matthew 19. Go back to Matthew 19 just to see what Jesus said there because it's the parallel account to this one. Matthew 19 unfolds just the way Mark 10 does, so we'll go on down to verse 9. Verse 9, And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for, depending on your translation, sexual immorality, fornication, and marries another, commits adultery, and whoever marries her who is divorced commits adultery. Here in this passage, Jesus made it clear that divorce was not commanded in the Old Testament, just like what he says in Mark 10, the Pharisees kind of twisted that, you know, divorce was a command. And Jesus says, no, it's not a command. It's a concession. It's a concession because of hardness of heart when people blow up their marriage by unfaithfulness. It's a divine concession. It's not a command, but it is permitted in cases of adultery. It is committed in cases of sexual immorality. You see, even though the penalty for adultery in the Old Testament was death, as I quoted earlier from Leviticus, Many times, God was gracious and did not kill the adulterer. David is one example. David, under Old Testament law, could have been killed for his adultery with Bathsheba. So David is an example of God's mercy where the adulterer isn't killed, and there are other examples. So death wasn't always inflicted for adultery, but many times it was. Now stay with me here. This is where we, we need to think so clearly. When the adulterer was killed, obviously the marriage was over and the faithful partner was free to remarry. But sometimes God, in his gracious tolerance, spared the life of the adulterer and in those cases permitted divorce and remarriage. This was a concession because of sin to make life more bearable for the one sinned against in the marriage. But let me hasten to add that God never punished the faithful partner. If a man committed adultery against his wife, God never punished the adulterous man's wife, or vice versa. If a woman committed adultery against her husband, God never punished the adulterous woman's husband. That would be silly. The, the adulterer was either killed, which allowed the wife or husband, whichever the case, to remarry, or God allowed divorce, which also freed the spouse to remarry. That's why Jesus puts in this exception clause here in Matthew 19.9. In the Old Testament, when God killed the adulterous spouse, then the faithful partner was free to marry someone else. But when God extends mercy to the adulterer, he doesn't punish the faithful partner by saying, hey, you know what, you have to stay married to someone who is immoral. That doesn't even make sense. Yet that's what some Christians teach. They say, no, no divorce, no remarriage under any circumstances. Regardless, you have to stay married to someone who is immoral. That's not what God has said. The, the basis of divorce and remarriage in the Bible is sexual immorality. Let me show you this from a couple different angles. Go back into Hebrew Scripture. Go back to the book of Jeremiah chapter 3. Isaiah, then Jeremiah, chapter 3. 
And we'll begin reading in verse 6. Jeremiah 3, verse 6. The Lord also said to me in the days of Josiah the king, Have you seen what backsliding Israel has done? She has gone up on every high mountain and under every green tree, and there played the harlot. And I said, after she had done all these things, return to me. But she did not return. And her treacherous sister Judah saw it. Then I saw that for all the causes for which backsliding Israel had committed adultery, I had put her away and given her a certificate of divorce. Isn't that an amazing passage? Who is doing the divorcing here? God is. God says, I called and called to Israel to repent of her adultery, but she wouldn't repent, so I divorced her. This is a very significant passage on the subject because God doesn't do things that are wrong. Those who teach no divorce, no remarriage under any circumstances, basically have to say God did wrong here by divorcing. God, you shouldn't have done that. There's, no, there's never grounds for divorce. Even God divorced in the case of this hard-heartedness, this unfaithfulness, this adultery. Then for another example, look with me at Matthew chapter 1, back on into the New Testament. Matthew chapter 1, the very first chapter of the New Testament. Verse 18, the passage we often read during the Christmas season. <clears throat> now the birth of Jesus, verse 18, Matthew 1, 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Then Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man, and not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. Please notice what this is saying. Joseph was a righteous man. And he was going to divorce his wife because he thought she had committed sexual immorality. When he found out she was pregnant, what else could he conclude? She's been unfaithful. But here the text says he's a righteous man, He's going to put her away, but he's going to do it quietly. He doesn't want to make a public example of her. But there was no question in his mind that he could put her away for her unfaithfulness. Joseph knew God's standard. Divorce is allowable in the case of sexual immorality. In fact, notice verse 20, the very next verse. This is really interesting. Verse 20, But while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph... Son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife. For that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. I think it's so instructive to read the angel's response here. The angel didn't say, Joseph, how dare you think of divorcing your wife, even if she's been unfaithful? There's no such, there are no grounds. What are you doing? No divorce, no remarriage regardless. No, no. Instead, he assures Joseph of Mary's faithfulness. You see, both Joseph and the angel knew what many fail to realize today, and that is this. Sexual immorality breaks the bond of marriage. Now, I'm not suggesting by that, in saying it breaks the bond, that it is obligatory, that if there's been unfaithfulness, that there has to be a divorce. Because if there is repentance, 
and there is a turning and there is humility, then oftentimes a marriage can be put back together. Sometimes it can. Sometimes it can't, depending on a lot of circumstances. But the point is, unfaithfulness does give the grounds for divorce and remarriage. And that's exactly what Jesus is saying in Matthew 19.9, where he reiterates the one Old Testament ground for divorce and remarriage, which is sexual immorality or unfaithfulness. Now, there's one other issue we need to deal with before we close, and that's the Greek term Jesus used in Matthew 19.9 that is translated fornication or sexual immorality. When he says, whoever divorces his spouse and marries another, except for sexual immorality, commits adultery. The term that Jesus used there is the Greek term porneia. We get the word pornography from this term. The Greek term porneia is a broader term than the technical word for adultery. That's the Greek word moikeia. So it's not the exact same word. Porneia is often used to encompass adultery and refer to adultery, but it's a much broader term that encompasses all kinds of sexual immorality. Homosexuality, pedophilia, bestiality, etc. Any form of, of abhorrent, aberrant sexual behavior comes under the umbrella of this term porneia. That's the term Jesus used. Because Jesus used that term, some people jump on that and say, hold it, hold it. Jesus doesn't use the specific term adultery there in Matthew 19. He doesn't use the term moikeia. And because he doesn't, he isn't really giving grounds for divorce and remarriage. He's only talking to the Jews about sexual unfaithfulness during the betrothal period. That's a very common view among many pastors and Bible teachers. But the problem with that view is that the term porneia is commonly used to refer to any kind of illicit sexual activity, including adultery. For example, in 1 Corinthians 10.8, Paul uses the term porneia to refer to what the Israelites did that resulted in 23,000 of them being killed by God. If the term porneia doesn't encompass adultery, which it does, but for the sake of argument, if you try to say it doesn't, then you have to say that all the 23,000 Israelites that God killed in that event were not married. They were all single, which would be impossible to substantiate. The term porneia refers to any kind of illicit sexual activity, including adultery. So in Matthew 19.9, when Jesus says, whoever divorces his wife except for porneia and marries another commits adultery, he is saying that it is acceptable to divorce and remarry for sexual unfaithfulness. If your spouse becomes an adulterer or a homosexual or a sexually immoral person in one way or another, then you are free to divorce and remarry. But if you divorce and remarry because you simply want someone else or you don't think your, your needs are being met or you're, 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 you know, you're going through a midlife crisis, then Jesus says you are proliferating adultery. That's what Jesus reiterated to his disciples in Mark 10. Some people will say, yeah, but Jesus didn't include the exception clause in Mark 10. That's only in Matthew 19. So there are really no grounds for remarriage. My response is, neither did he include the issue of death in Mark 10. But I don't know of many people who would deny that death frees a person to remarry. If your spouse dies, you're free to remarry. That's why we take all of Scripture 
as a whole instead of isolating one text from all others. If your spouse becomes a sexually immoral person, you are free to divorce and remarry. But if you divorce and remarry simply because you want someone else, then Jesus says you are proliferating adultery. And Jesus, in line with the Word of God, is the authority. Not a rabbi, not another teacher, another pastor, a counselor. Jesus is the authority. When Jesus speaks, what he says is binding. It is the most compelling authority there is. And that's true for anything Jesus addresses, which is why when he said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father except through me, that is true. That is authoritative. The only way to be right with God is through Jesus. That's what Jesus said. That's what Scripture says. Jesus, Scripture, that's final. Let's bow as we close. So if you are here today without a relationship with Jesus Christ, remember what Jesus said is is final. It's authoritative, what Scripture says. And Scripture says that the only way to be right with God is through Jesus Christ. So if you're here today and you're not right with God, you're not a child of God, you must come through Jesus Christ. You must humble yourself before him, call out to him, cry out to him, asking for his forgiveness, asking for his salvation, asking him to cleanse you, to take you and make you the man or the woman he wants you to be. Father, it is so important for us to do what Jesus did on that occasion, and that is go back to Scripture. Go back to your Word. Whether it's the issue of divorce and remarriage or whatever the issue, we always must go to Scripture. And we know very clearly that Scripture tells us the only path to you is through your Son, Jesus Christ. So as we close this morning, we do so by praying for anyone here in our midst, anyone who hears these words, who doesn't know you as Father and know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, that your Holy Spirit would draw that man, woman, young person, whoever it is, to embrace Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.